Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. What I saw in the hearing that mattered most to me was that there absolutely has been a pattern of criminal behavior white-collar crime, right, within the Trump organization yep. for a very long time. And yes, indeed, that pattern extended to his time in the Oval Office. Once you've sacrificed your values for someone like that, then it's not just losing the current opportunity. It's saying all that was for nothing. And I think you see that with Michael Cohen. I made all these sacrifices. I sacrificed my values. I embarrassed my Holocaust survival parents. And I did it, and it was all lost, and it was for nothing. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Our heads are spinning from all the news this week, and we are going to try to sort that out with you here today. And based on both the things that have happened and listener requests on topics, we are going to do a whirlwind through what's happening in the international scene. We're going to talk about President Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un. We're also going to talk about Ben Sass's bill that was defeated in Congress and the craziness surrounding North Carolina's election. We have many listeners who have reached out to us about the decision of the United Methodist Church this week, so we'll talk about that. 
We'll take a quick break and then we'll talk about one Michael Cohen who spent some time with Congress. Some time. So much time. So much time. We also wanted to, again, share that we will be live podcasting next weekend, Saturday, March 9th, in my beloved hometown of Paducah, Kentucky. So if you're anywhere near Paducah, come to the McCracken County Library and see us podcast and sign books. We're really excited. We're going to be signing books that afternoon at our local amazing flower shop, Flower and Furbish. So come to Paducah, y'all. You can see us. You can see Top Chef Sarah. I'm going to go ahead and proclaim her the winner. We're so excited. So check it out. It's on both our Facebook page and the McCracken County Public Library's Facebook page. Well, the president is getting lots of heat this morning on another summit with North Korea that hasn't produced any tangible results. But I would like to start off by saying I am glad that the president walked away from this meeting instead of acquiescing to North Korea's demands to lift all sanctions without getting much in return, which seemed to me like the most likely scenario here. So I would rather the president walk away as he did than finagle a deal that's not a meaningful deal for the United States. I totally agree. That was my immediate reaction, because let me tell you, as we're going to get into later, not a great news day for the president. Just not awesome. I was worried that he was going to acquiesce or come to some agreement that was not beneficial for the United States or for the North Korean people in order to get a win so that he wouldn't be walking away empty handed in the middle of this new cycle that has not been awesome for him. So I, I had the same reaction. I was like, no, let him don't give him crap for walking away. I think that was the right thing to do here. If you haven't been following the substance of the North Korean negotiations, the United States did give some things in advance. We have had for decades insistence that North Korea disclose to us all of the components of its nuclear program. And walking into this summit, we said, "Okay, you know what? We won't make you tell us absolutely everything. And we focused our efforts around one particular facility that we think is at the heart of North Korea's program. And a facility about which North Korea has made some concessions in the past. And so I was really worried that we would get some more concessions on that one facility that North Korea would later blow off, that they would Mm -hmm. not allow inspectors to come in and verify that deal, and that we would take all the sanctions off this country and start building, I don't know, Trump hotels Mm -hmm. in North Korea immediately. And so I really, I really am comforted that it just ended this way. Now, I think it's terrible that the president has taken Kim Jong-un at his word about what happened to Otto Wambier. I think it's terrible that there are so many compliments flowing between the two of them. But I'm happy that he walked away. Yeah, I didn't know. Please. And also, before we move on from global news, there seems to be a de-escalation between India and Pakistan. Pakistan is now agreeing to release an Indian pilot they took hostage after several tit-for-tat airstrikes. And so I think the entire global community is happy that there seems to be some de-escalation at the moment. It is a good thing to be able to take a breath in that region of the world, even if it is a tiny one. Mm-hmm. Many listeners have reached out to ask what we think about Ben Sass's bill and its defeat. I think that this whole circumstance is such a product of the country's continuing conversation about abortion. And I think this particular episode in that conversation is unhelpful to an America that can get its heads together on what we mean when we say we value life and women's rights. Mm-hmm. It's just so frustrating to me that. The narrative becomes, well, 
all these Democrats want to murder babies. And of course, the people on the other side of pure of heart. I mean, there is no, no calibration to motivations, to benefit of the doubt. The idea that all these Democratic senators, that people running for the presidency like Kristen Gillibrand, who has two kids, who like was the breastfeeding senator for a while, would be like, yeah, I definitely want to murder babies. It's so upsetting to me. And the idea that Ben Sass is so pure of heart that he had two years of a completely Republican-controlled Congress and didn't think this was such a top priority is really, really frustrating to me. A lot of people have asked, how could they vote for this? Well, it's because there's already a bill that does this. This just adds criminal penalties to the doctors. And that's why it was opposed by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Do we think the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, who, let me be clear, I'm not always on board with, wants to murder babies? Like, come on, you guys. If it doesn't, if it seems extreme, if it seems like people are making decisions that seem heartless and harsh and immoral, then maybe there's another explanation. The bill was called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It would have required doctors to use all means available to save the life of a child born alive after an attempted abortion. It says the doctors must exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of the child as they would for any other child born alive at the same gestational age. And Sarah is referring to the Born Alive Infants Protection Act of 2002 that has similar provisions in it. But as you said, Sarah doesn't criminalize the conduct. And the statistics on this show how infrequently this happens. And that's honestly why I'm having a hard time talking about it, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I worry that someone could be listening who desperately wanted a child and painfully found out at the last minute that that child was not going to be able to live. And that child had to be birthed and was born alive and the mother or family had to hold that child as it died. I mean, I'm just so concerned that we're hurting people by the way we talk about this. And I don't want to do that. Well, and also what upsets me is that when you talk about statistically how likely this is to happen and the fact there is already legislation addressing this incredibly rare circumstance. Look, I agree with some of the congressional statements yesterday. I believe that that Congress can walk and chew gum at the same time. However, there is a finite amount of time for them to work on things and pass legislation. And is this really the top priority for our country when we're facing an immigration crisis, when we have a changing economy, when we have increasing student loan? I mean, there's just so climate change, so many huge, giant issues. And we have to spend time on a duplicate of a law we already have that addresses an incredibly rare situation and that is probably harmful to you, like you said, to so many people that have been through similar situations. It's just it's incredibly frustrating. On a topic that I don't think anyone really cares about, but I do, I'm not sure why this is a federal matter. Mm. This seems to me like something that should be discussed and talked about at the state level. I think the only reason this has happened is because of the Virginia and New York laws and the sense of we have to do something to keep states from getting too far out ahead of where we think the country should be on protecting life. And I understand that when you read the text of this bill and you think about 
the, I think, almost non-existent circumstance where someone just doesn't want a child and decides that at the very last minute and you have an image of people trying to murder a human being, that is that is a very upsetting and awful thing. And you think that's not who we are. And so I want to protect against that. And I totally respect and understand that perspective. And I also just don't believe that's happening. And Mm -hmm. I certainly don't believe that's happening often enough for this to be a matter that should be debated in Congress. And I'm, I'm just kind of heartbroken because I'm worried about all of the people who are hurt in this discussion. Well, we know many of you are incredibly heartbroken about the decision with the United Methodist Church. For those of you who have not been following along closely, the Global United Methodist Church voted to keep the language on homosexuality as part of their book of discipline. It strengthened the language around penalties for clergy and bishops who perform same-sex weddings and ordain LGBTQ pastors. So many within the United Methodist Church have been working for decades to make the church more welcoming, and this vote was closely watched. It was a very close vote, and most of the reporting says it passed largely in part to global congregations, particularly congregations on the African continent, where you have laws that still punish homosexuality with death. So I'm just so I'm so sad for them. I really am. My husband and I have been watching this closely, and I know how. I'm I'm heartbroken for LGBTQ members of the United Methodist Church. I'm heartbroken for the, their families. And I'm heartbroken for just congregations who are not directly related to someone who is LGBTQ, but whose faith rests on a foundation of the radical love and acceptance of Christ and who are now facing these incredibly difficult decisions and votes and decisions that are in direct conflict to what their faith is based on. And I'm I'm just heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for them. I agree. And I'm heartbroken for LGBTQ people who have mm-hmm. received another message that church isn't for them. Yep. Whether they are part of the Methodist congregation or not, I think this is just a really sad moment for everyone. And we've gotten lots of messages from listeners, including one from Jill, who said, please remember how hard this is for people within the church who have been fighting for the radical love of Christ to kind of triumph within our congregation. And we also received a message from Maggie that I thought was really insightful. She said, this was a reminder to me of how many of us have walked away from church and expected it to become something better in our absence. And what this really—that's so good, isn't it? It's so good, Maggie. It's so good that a lot of a lot of what this tells her is that if we want our institutions to be better, we must lean into those institutions. And I really appreciated that perspective. That perspective is a lot of what drove me back to church after the 2016 election. So this is complicated. It's horrible, as Jackie pointed out on Twitter. Decisions like this escalate the danger around a population that is already endangered in many ways, that the suicide rate is so high for LGBTQ youth especially. And so I just think this is a hard and heartbreaking time. And I hope that this decision enables us to have greater conversations, at least in the United States, about how we treat each other and how we care about each other and how we can love each other better. 
Jill had a really beautiful part about her message. As we have these conversations together, she says, please don't try and be helpful and suggest other denominations that are more affirming than UMC. If you are Methodist and agree with the outcome, please don't try to explain your position to us or options for us to break off from the church. We are sad. We feel like we've lost our spiritual home. We are worried about the queer children that will continue to be born into traditionalist congregations and harmed by their teachings and ultimate rejection. We are worried about our clergy who feel alienated by their church and may be serving out their calling in a church they now disagree with. And please do not tell queer Methodists what you think they should do, stay, or go, or how they should feel. There was just an entire denominational vote on their humanity. Please be mindful of your words. It's okay to just say, I know you're hurting, and I'm sorry you're sad. I think that is such a good way to remind us how to talk about all kinds of hard things. I mean, what mm-hmm. would the discussion about the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Act be if everyone said, I want to recognize that there's a lot of heartbreak around what we're talking about right now. Yeah. I want to recognize that this is really painful. I just think it would dramatically change everything. It might not change where people ultimately cast their votes, but we can move forward from something where we feel more connected to one another. And we can't move forward when we're just taking these opportunities to say, you know, you're wrong and I'm right in in such hurtful terms. Yeah, it's so hard in in conversations, including conversations about the church that step into political areas because we acknowledge that politics is emotional, but there's this sense of like that is bad. And I think that turns into whatever emotions you feel about a political subject are irrelevant. But that's not true. You know, that it's just not true. I'm refusing to acknowledge or get curious about the emotional stories people tell themselves about political issues is not working for any of us. And being willing to listen to each other's stories, being able to hear and affirm each other's feelings and still saying we can disagree on the political pragmatic solutions moving forward is something we're not great at. I would like to recommend everyone read our book if they'd like to get better at it. Because we don't live in file cabinets. And I think when we talk about it like, well, that's a church matter, not a political matter, or that's a personal matter, not a political matter. It's as though we live in file cabinets. And the truth is, sometimes we do have to deliberately say, I'm going to compartmentalize this because it doesn't make for good policy to pull all of these things together. But when we are talking about how we talk with one another and how we can do better as a country in lots of realms, you do have to acknowledge that those lines aren't so bright. We're going to take a quick break and return to talk about the hearing that took place in front of the House Oversight Committee with Michael Cohen testifying. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special, and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. 
and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony that you are about to give is the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Let the record show that the witness answered in the affirmative. And thank you, and you may be seated. The microphones are sensitive, so please speak directly into them. Without objection, your written statement will be made a part of the record. And with that, Mr. Coyne, you are now recognized to give an oral presentation of your testimony. On Wednesday, Michael Cohen appeared before the House Oversight Committee, and as expected, it was quite a spectacle. And I know, Sarah, that you watched the entire thing. I watched and listened to, in some combination, most of it. But I did not do the seven-and-a-half-hour slog that you did. It was really intense, but I do think that's a really great way to watch it. Because when you watch highlights or when you watch clips and certain segments of the testimonies, which I've done the last few times, there have been kind of big testimonies, you miss the overall flow. You miss the overall energy of the room, how it dips and sort of how people pick up narratives. It was it was just it was long. I insta storied laying down part of the day because I was so tired from watching all of it. And I do feel like I need some sort of badge like a citizen sash, and then I should get a badge for watching all seven and a half hours. 
But I'm glad I did. I felt like I learned a lot. I felt like I had better insight into what we were just talking about, sort of the emotional narratives that are going on beyond just the highlights, etc. So Michael Cohen came before the committee. First, the Republicans tried to use some procedural machinations to delay the hearing, and it did not work. Then Elijah Cummings, the chair of the committee, started us out. It was, I mean, he tried to go immediately for what became one of the central back and forth over the entire days of testimony, which is, why should we believe you? Martin Luther King, Mr. Cohen, said some words that I leave with you today before you testify. He said, faith is taking the first step, even when you can't see the whole staircase. There comes a time when silence becomes betrayal. Our lives begin to end. Today we become silent about things that truly matter. In the end, he says, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. I thought it was a it was a good start to the hearing. I just want to say that in terms of those machinations from Republicans, they weren't wrong about the fact that documents were received very late before the hearing. The trouble for Republicans is that they started hearings after documents had been dumped at the last minute when they were in the majority many times. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to fall back on procedural norms when you have tossed those norms out the window when you are in charge. And so I was very frustrated by the tone of that discussion. And I also think it just showed how dysfunctional our Congress, specifically the House, has become, because that's the kind of matter that could have easily been resolved not in front of the cameras. Yeah. And that Mark Meadows chose to do it in front of the cameras said everything you needed to know about where Mark Meadows was going to be for the rest of the hearing. Well, and I don't know if Mark Meadows went to Elijah Cummings before and Elijah Cummings said no. I mean, we don't know that, but he definitely, whatever the answer, decided to replay it out in front of the cameras. It was a very grandstanding moment from Mark Meadows that that frustrated me. As someone who cares a lot about procedure, I think those grandstanding attempts to use procedure really undermine an actual interest in the process. Well, and that's how I felt every time they did the, we are denigrating the integrity of the institution. I was like, y'all, come on. Nobody buys that anymore. You spent all that up with your own hearings. This is all of our circus and all of our monkeys, and we're all going to own it now moving forward. Like, that, come give me a dang break. A couple of them did that sort of, oh, let me render my clothing in mourning over the assault on the institution of Congress. Please. The integrity of the institution has been denigrated, and rebuilding it is going to require more than y'all yelling about that on camera. Mm-hmm. I am here under oath to correct the record, to answer the committee's questions truthfully, and to offer the American people what I know about President Trump. I recognize that some of you may doubt and attack me on my credibility. It is for this reason that I have incorporated into this opening statement documents that are irrefutable and demonstrate that the information you will hear is accurate and truthful. So Michael Cohen's opening statement was very dramatic. You can read it in its entirety online. His themes were that Donald Trump is a racist, a con man, and a cheat. 
And this was really his moment to say, world, I worked for this person for a long time. I no longer work for this person. I am going to tell you what a bad human being he is. Mm-hmm. And I think the most compelling aspects of that opening statement for me were the things that he was able to validate with documentary evidence. Because, I mean, yep. it's not inaccurate to say that Michael Cohen has lied many times in very serious context in front of the very body that he was testifying before. And so I do think you have to take everything he says with an appropriate level of skepticism and understand that this is a person who has always been about self-dealing and dealing on behalf of the person who, you know, was his bread and butter for a while. The problem is when you have an organization filled with people who are known to be self-dealers in the kindest terms, it's tricky to find someone who's going to be appearing before Congress who doesn't have a history of lying or at least obfuscating very important facts. And so for me, you know, if I had been a member of that committee, I think I would have handled it very much like Representative Ocasio-Cortez. I thought that she handled this more professionally than anyone else because she asked very precise and specific questions with the intention of learning something or finding out who could answer those questions. Further confirm. I felt like that was the most investigative line of questioning that the whole hearing received. I mean, a lot of the rest of it was just speeches, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Let me go back to Cohen for a moment. I had such a similar reaction, and I felt like other people did, too, as to when Dr. Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh testified, that after reading so much about a person and feeling like you understand them and for to see them in person with sincere emotion in their voice, with saying statements like, I'm ashamed of myself, to really witness their trauma or their struggle in a very human way is is always, I think it always takes us a little bit off guard. I think there's something about living in Trump's America where you have a leader who is highly expressive but rarely sincere, that when you get people with sincere, authentic emotions in front of the nation, as you have with Jim Comey, with Kavanaugh, and now with Michael Cohen, we all have this moment of like, oh, my God, right. These are real people. These are real people. And we're all real people living in this in this situation. And so there was a real humanity, I thought, to his opening statement. I believed him. I understand that he's lied in the past. But like you said, with, a, with an organization that at best was not following at the letter of the law and at worst was openly engaging in criminal behavior, I think not only is it going to be difficult to find an honest person inside an organization like that, but I think what's really important to remember is that when you have an organization like that led by someone like Donald Trump, the second even a purely honest person thinks something's not right, I've got to do something, there is such fear and intimidation That that's even when an honest person would start lying to protect themselves because there's such an environment of intimidation, of fear, of we protect this person at all costs, which Michael Cohen mentioned all the time, that people are going to start covering up and lying. 
And I think that that's what you see with a lot of people under indictment with the Mueller investigation and in the Southern District of New York, that the mission of the Trump organization and everyone surrounding Donald Trump was to do whatever it takes to protect him. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And so even an honest person, when faced with this, if you don't, there will be consequences, will start to make bad choices because they're afraid. And I'm not saying that Michael Cohen started as an honest person, but I do think there was so much of I have he can harm me. I mean, he's expressed so many times I'm afraid of him. I was afraid of of what would happen to me. I've lost everything. And so those really raw moments when he was expressing where he was at certain points in this timeline, how afraid he was, why he made bad choices, where he is now, how he's lost everything were really intense. And I also think when he was painting this picture of his own journey, the authenticity and sort of intense portrayal he brought to what it's like to be with Donald Trump, the whole like, this is how he communicates. He knows not to say, go cover this up. Or so he'll say, oh, yeah, nothing going on with Russia, while very clearly implying I need to go continue to negotiate the Moscow Tower deal. Or, oh, especially when he was saying, recounting in detail, of which there is no cooperating evidence, of some of the racist things Donald Trump says in private. It, It really was striking and emotional for me in a way that I did not expect. I did not have that reaction. I've observed fixer relationships before where there's a powerful person and someone who cleans up after that powerful person and does that person's bidding in a couple of different contexts. And I do think that there is an element of fear, but it's a very dramatic sense of fear, right? I don't think it's like a legitimate fear where you're where your life is really at risk. It's more about opportunism. You become a fixer because you think there's something in it for you. You worry about losing that status because you worry about losing what could be in it for you. And so I I look at Michael Cohen with, I think, less compassion than you're expressing, which I feel a little bit bad about, but it's just my honest reaction. I thought in terms of the point of the hearing, I, I did not like going down that road of is he a racist or not? Because does anyone in America have a question about that? And and what is Congress going to do about it if they do reach some kind of irrefutable conclusion? To me, what was more important were all of the seeds. And this just keeps happening, right? There are so many seeds for what one congressman referred to as garden variety financial crimes. Mm-hmm. I think that there are so many things that other committees of Congress, prosecutors across the country need to pick up and run with from here. And how many of those will actually reach the president? I do not know. But if I were a member of the president's family, I would be very, very concerned about the testimony Mm -hmm. yesterday. If I were an officer within the Trump organization, I would be very nervous after the testimony yesterday. I think those people were probably already nervous. And I think a lot of those investigations have already convinced. But What I saw in the hearing that mattered most to me was that there absolutely has been a pattern of criminal behavior, white collar crime, right, within the Trump organization for a very long time. And yes, indeed, that pattern extended to his time in the Oval Office. It's not that I necessarily had compassion for him. I just felt it. And I think it's not just about opportunism. It's about once you've made, once you've sacrificed your values for someone like that, then it's not just losing the current opportunity. It's saying all that was for nothing. 
And I think you see that with Michael Cohen. I made all these sacrifices. I sacrificed my values. I embarrassed my Holocaust survival parents. And I did it and it was all lost and it was for nothing. You know what I mean? Like when this, I feel like that raises the stakes. When people start to sacrifice their values and make those concessions and do things they're not proud of and it builds this bank of, well, now I've done all this and I don't want to have done all this for nothing. Not just that I don't want to lose the opportunities in the future, but I don't want to say everything I've done in the past was for nothing. And I felt that from him. I saw him. He, I think he did a good job of saying like, this is how I got here. And one of the most Incredible moments for me is when the Republicans were holding up this picture of him that said, liar, liar, pants on fire, like we're in freaking elementary school. And he said, I get it. I did it, too. For 10 years, I did the silly stuff you're doing right now. And let me warn you, if you continue to follow this man out of blind loyalty like I did for 10 years, you will end up where I am and you will have lost everything. And I thought that I mean, I just sat back and was like. Oh, my. Like, what a warning. What a, I'm on the other side of what it's like to be loyal to a person who is a cheat and a crook. And I sacrificed everything. And this moment of reckoning will come for you, too. And that's not to mean that I think every member of Congress that's supported Donald Trump is going to end up in jail. I don't believe that. But I mean, I just thought it was such a moment of like, oh, my gosh, he's I mean, he's right. He's right. <laughs> he's right. And. I thought that the best part about his sort of theme of he's a cheater and a and a con man is that it, you know, besides there was a few moments, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, not surprisingly, because she got swept up on all this, was very interested in the email leaks from WikiLeaks. And we did learn that he knew about that. Michael Cohen is now saying definitively that, that Donald Trump knew about that leak before it came out. And that's important. But I thought that one of the most important things was that the majority of the hearing the sort of national thing we're all paying attention to wasn't about Russia. We weren't talking about the only thing that matters, which is what Donald Trump has been trying to convince the country of and has successfully convinced a portion of the country about, which is that the only thing that matters is if Robert Mueller comes out and says there's no collusion. Like there was a lot of testimony and a lot of questioning that focused on this is not just about whether he has a note, a contract with Vladimir Putin, but this is about that he has a long history of defrauding people and, like you said, like white collar crime within his organization. And that's important and that's relevant. I also felt very confirmed. I didn't have time to go back and look through our notes. But I mean, do you remember when we had this conversation that was like, we don't think he's an agent of the Russian government. We think he was trying. I think we even said a hotel in Moscow, like Moscow Tower, before that was public knowledge. I mean, I feel like we were psychic, and I'm very proud of us. Any listener wants to go find where we said that, bonus points. But it was what we've said all along. This was about money. It wasn't about that he is an agent of the Russian government. It's about what it always is, which is he wants to make more money, and he will bend the rules to make it happen. I mean, that's exactly where I am landing in the whole thing, that what will be his undoing in the United States is about money, not about treason. Mm -hmm. And that what I think Robert Mueller is trying to say is, wake up, everybody. This is about a lot more than Donald Trump. Yeah. That what's going on with Russia is actually going on with Russia and it's serious. And he is like a minor player in that, mm -hmm. that this is. 
at least a decade in the making with no plans to stop in the future. And we're making it easier for Vladimir Putin all the time. Vladimir Putin, who is not just putting disinformation on Facebook, he's annexed another country for Christ's sake. And Uh we're sitting over here picking at each other as though Donald Trump is the center of the universe. And so I think in that way, the Cohen hearing was a healthy way to clarify that there are separate issues going on and we need to approach them separately. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
Here is my frustration with the hearing. Democrats, meet me at the mic. We need to have a goal. This is a goal. We want to paint this picture for the American public, get this information, and the march through each member will build to that conclusion. Instead of, this person makes a speech, this person has good questions, anybody want to, like, Jamie Raskin, my former law professor, was getting a lot of information on him, had a lot of really good questions. Somebody at the New York Times was like, if anybody had a brain in their head, they'd yield to him because he's good at it. And you saw the Republicans do that. They would yield their time back to Meadows and Jordan all the time. And so I just I think that there needs to be a more concentrated effort at these hearings, especially ones that are going to be such national viewing events to like paint a picture. We're going to paint a picture here. We're going to work our way through. We're not going to be, oh, Debbie Washerman Schultz is asking about this. And this person is over here asking about this. Now, everybody remember this. We're going to go back and talk about that. Like, it was not awesome. AOC, I think, did absolutely, like you said, the best job because she did almost zero grandstanding. She took her five minutes and immediately started. And she, you could tell she had very specific questions, very specific. She built a case for further subpoenas. And talked specifically about fraud in her district. I mean, I just thought she knocked it out of the park. She's good in hearing. She had that other viral moment at hearings. You also mentioned that the president was very concerned about the whereabouts of these documents and who possessed them. Does that treasure trove of documents still exist? I, I don't know. I had asked David Pecker for them. So you would say the person who knows the whereabouts of these documents would be David Pecker? David Pecker, Barry Levine, or um, Dylan Howard. Okay, thank you. And so I would just wish there was more like awareness of for some for people watching that there needs to be this this building of the case, this building of the narrative, because the media will pick up on that, too. And even people who are just watching highlights will get the idea. I mean, I don't know if they talk to each other at all, but they sure need to. I struggle because I want these hearings to be what they're actually supposed to be. I mean, I think the advice that you just gave is exactly right for what these hearings are. And if America's watching for seven and a half hours, you should have your act together. I was really disappointed that Republicans on the committee weren't even pretending to be interested in trying to get to some kind of objective truth, that it was just an exercise in defending the president by denigrating this person mm -hmm. who doesn't need to be denigrated further. Like he is going to pay his price. He's going to pay a very significant price for the things that he has done. And how miserable to have to sit and talk about what he talked about. I don't feel sorry for him necessarily, but I think that the way the Republicans approached this hearing was so nakedly partisan, it's hard to have any confidence in what they're doing on that side of the aisle. And that's just continues to be a profound disappointment to me. Well, and I think that advice, though, could also be about building evidence and, and asking questions and getting what you want, because I think it's also hard for the witness to bounce a brown like that. Whereas if one person said, OK, we're going to the first these three members are going to get to the insurance and you, you know, or just yield your time. But they want to be in front of the cameras, whatever. So work it out. So you're saying, OK, Michael Cohen. We're going to talk about insurance fraud. We're going to build here. And so like his brain is in that spot. It doesn't really even have to be about the viewers. I think it's a better experience for the witness and you get more information out them if you're not bouncing all over the place. One of the odd things about Michael Cohen's story that I don't necessarily find suspicious, I can come up with a way that all of this is true, but it is a little bit disjointing to hear that they never intended to win. I thought one of the most impactful lines of his opening statement was when he said that Donald Trump told people his campaign 
would be the greatest infomercial in political history, that this was all about just enriching the Trump brand. Now, I don't know that anyone necessarily disagrees with that. That seemed pretty obvious the whole time, right? But it's hard to put that together with what became when at all costs we're going to be excited about the WikiLeaks dump on the Clinton emails. Like there's a part where I'm like, well, he seemed to really want to win sometimes, but to never have intended to win. But I get that a person who has a giant ego will take any opportunity to win the news cycle and win the day. And maybe it was more about winning the day instead of winning in the long term. I don't think it was the same all the time. I think sometimes he was I think when he started, this was an opportunity to build his brand, get better, more money out of NBC. And then he didn't think he'd win the primary. And as it looked like victory was available to him, then his mindset would shift. I think like post Access Hollywood, they didn't think they were going to win. So, I mean, I think it was probably more back and forth. I wanted to point out before we move on to a, a couple of what I thought were really human beautiful moments that aren't making all the highlight reels um, within the testimony. Particularly at the end, there was a, a lot of sort of bickering because Rashida Tlaib, I mean, she did basically call Mark Meadows a, a racist because they had this really ridiculous moment where they brought a black woman who works in HUD, who worked for the campaign over and had her stand behind Mark Meadows and say, Donald Trump couldn't possibly be racist. Look at this black lady that works for him. It was so ridiculous. And Rashida Tlaib was not wrong to say that was racist and offensive. But then Mark Meadows, you know, put on the the suit of outrage, a white man being called racist. Oh, my Lord, just into the world. And then it, and I thought I was like rolling my eyes and I was like, this is everything wrong with America. And then Elijah Cummings come in and says basically like, we're friends, Mark Meadows. I know that caused you pain. I'm going to give her a chance to clarify. And I was like, they're f- they're friends? That's a, kind of amazing. And it was just, he did a really good job de-escalating it. Everybody sort of, igno- they did exactly what we talked about in our book. They prioritized the relationship. You could see Elijah Cummings and Mark Meadows saying, I see you. You're my relationship. I'm freaking out right now. I'm going to prioritize our relationship. And it was a really human moment. And I thought... It was not how I was expecting that to end. And then Elijah Cummings had this really beautiful closing statement that left Michael Cohen in tears where he was basically like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I see you trying. Basically, like, I hear you and I see you. And it just was kind of it was touching. It was not what I expected to end my seven and a half hours with this committee on. But I thought it was a really beautiful moment. Well, I bring up the win at all costs because of a situation in North Carolina that many of you have asked us for thoughts on. As you probably know, there's a congressional seat in North Carolina that is still empty because an election there was narrowly decided and then contested. And it turns out that the Republican candidate had hired an individual and I guess a firm to manipulate absentee ballots and basically to defraud the voters of North Carolina. I mean, this was This was election fraud, right? The rules were broken and there was a very dramatic hearing resulting in a new election. And the candidate who did this, Mark Harris, will not be on the ballot in the new election. I thought one of the best analysis I heard of the hearing, and I want to say first, important to distinguish election fraud from voter fraud. So this is I'm cheating at the rules of the election as a candidate to win versus what Republicans often and Donald Trump often belly aches about, which is voters coming in that aren't voters and voting or voting more than once. That's a totally different ballgame. In the hearing, when they were trying to determine if there had been fraud, Dud Legume, who's a big Twitter person, and his email wrote up and he called Mark Harris's son the anti-Ivanka because he came 
to the hearing when you're talking about a dramatic hearing and basically said, I told my dad not to do this. He knew McCray Dallas was basically a fraudster. I told him not to do it. He brought emails where they had like discussed this. And I thought, what a difficult thing that he did. And I don't know. It didn't seem like that had just severed their relationship. But I thought for a son to come and say, my dad did this and I warned him not to, was really powerful. So they have vacated the election. They're going to hold another one. And McCray Dallas looks like got arrested. Looks like his little booty's going to go to jail. I listened to that testimony a few times because I was so struck by hearing the son say, I love my parents. Mm-hmm. I love my mom. I love my dad. They made decisions here that I would not have made. And I just, again, like, I think this is the the mood I'm in today or something, but I'm so grateful when people step up to do the right thing for them and also acknowledge that doing the right thing is hard sometimes and that yep. their relationships matter and people who've done the wrong thing aren't to be just tossed aside as though they don't matter anymore, you know? And I I just, I really think that there's something beautiful about the way this turned out, as horrible as it is for the people of North Carolina who are going to have to incur the, the cost and the drama of another election and who are still unrepresented in the Congress. I mean, it's terrible what's happened here. But I also think it gives me hope, you know, for a member of of a candidate's family to say, an election is not worth my values. Here we are. Oh, and can I just say, as a former candidate, I cannot fathom how angry I would be as the Democratic candidate, Dan McCready, to have made the sacrifice, to have spent time away from my family, to have done all this because I believe in North Carolina, I want to represent these people. And because somebody else cheated, I have to do it all again. Oh, I would be so mad. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. So there's awful. no there's no great answer here. And it's it's awful what's happened. There are lots more news stories, and you can catch us with some of those through Sarah's Instagram stories and through the Nightly Nuance on Patreon, where I spend most of my time. And we hope you will do that. We'll also be back here in your ears on Tuesday for another episode between now and then. We love hearing from you on social media and email. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 